الحمد لله الذي هدانا لهذا وما كنا لنهتدي لولا أن هدانا الله وأشهد أن لا إله إلا الله وحده لا شريك له له الحمد وله الملك يحيي ويميت بيده الخير وهو على كل شيء قدير وأشهد أن محمدا عبد الله ورسوله وصفيه وقليله أرسله الله للناس نذيرا وبشيرا لقد كان لكم في رسول الله أسوة حسنة لمن كان يرجو الله واليوم الآخر وذكر الله كثيرا محمد رسول الله والذين معه أشداء على الكفار رحماء بينهم من يطع الله ورسوله وأولي الأمر من المؤمنين فقد هدى ومن يعص الله ورسوله وأولي الأمر من المؤمنين فقد ضل ضلالا بعيدا أوصيكم ونفسي أولا بتقوى الله وطاعته وأحذركم من عسيانه ومخالفة أمره أما بعد فإن خير الحديث كتاب الله وأحسن الهدي هدي محمد وشر الأمور محدثاتها وكل محدثة بدعة وكل بدعة ضلالة وكل ضلالة في النار يقول الله عز وجل وهو أصدق القائلين في كتابه الكريم إن الذين تدعون من دون الله عباد أمثالكم فدعوهم فليستجيبوا لكم إن كنتم صادقين ألهم أرجل يمشون بها أم لهم أيد يبطشون لها يبطشون بها أم لهم أعين يبصرون بها أم لهم آذان يبصرون أم لهم آذان يستمعون بها Brothers and sisters committed Muslims These ayat which were just quoted are from Surah Al-An'am and they are the 194th and 195th ayat of that surah. 
In these particular ayat, they address the subject of idols and the human conformity to what may be considered figurines made out of stone or wood. Roughly translated, these ayat will render as follows. Indeed, all of those that you appeal to besides Allah are nothing but created beings like yourselves. And so call unto them and see if they respond to your plea. If indeed what you are saying about them is true. For do they have feet with which, that, with which they can walk? Or do they have hands with which they can grasp? Or do they have eyes with which they can see? Or do they have ears which with, with which they can hear? And so these particular ayat were revealed to what may be considered a primitive society a pre-literate society. And when we read our history books, we see that one of the features of pre-literate societies was that they conformed to or worshipped idols. They demanded things from idols. And when they would get in trouble they would make a plea or a supplication to their idols to save them from whatever distress they felt they were going to encounter. And so it may be said by those who are reading these ayat, well, we have no idols today. We don't live in a pre-literate world. We live in a world that has advanced beyond that sort of primitive consciousness of the divine. And brothers and sisters, I'd like you to bear with me as I try to explain what these ayat mean in our world today. I don't mean to make too much of an intellectual point about these ayat, but in order to understand what they are trying to communicate, we will have to try to think through these ayat together in order to try to make sense of the kind of world we live in today. And so given that we do not live any longer in a pre-literate world. Can it be suggested that these ayat no longer apply today? Or perhaps if we say to ourselves that the Quran applies to all times and all places, that, ide that idolatry exists in all times and in all places. It existed in the past, it exists in the present, and it shall exist in the future. And were it not a permanent feature of human societies, there would be no need for these ayat in the Quran. For given that it is a future, that it is a feature of human societies, that means it falls under the scope of moral rectification.
And so we do have idolatry today. Only that idolatry is not in the physical form of figurines made of stone or wood. We have mental idols. And they are just as dangerous, if not more dangerous, than idols made out of some kind of tangible material. In a sense, it could, it could be said that the idolatry of today is more sophisticated than the idolatry of the past. And this idolatry today takes the form of strategies and policies, ideologies and political systems that claim to give man a sense of security and well-being. Things that he ought to be demanding and getting from Allah. But that sense of well-being, apparently man, the man of today, feels that he can get that from governments and from kings and princes. Some of the idols of today are racism and nationalism. They are more sophisticated than the idols of the past. But nonetheless, the human conformity to these kinds of orientations qualifies as a form of idolatry. Tell me the difference. In the past, with primitive peoples, they would offer their children to their gods made of stone or wood. And today, we have the modern peoples offering their children to go and fight in wars for the homeland, in wars for imperialism and Zionism, in wars for takfir, in wars for sectarianism. And so brothers and sisters, you tell me the difference. Offering your, your children as sacrifices to gods at the altars of stone and wood? Or gods that take the form of presidents and prime ministers who order your children to go out and fight in unwinnable wars that will, that will last for generations? And so we do have idolatry today. We do have the sacrifice of life to gods that don't respond to the plea of the people who are suffering injustice. It is true that anything made out of stone or wood or some other material doesn't have feet to walk with. It doesn't have hands. It doesn't have eyes. It doesn't have ears. But those idols of the past, they could see, they could hear, they could walk, and they could form things with their hands. But they could only do that because they had human agents at their disposal. And it is those human agents that were the eyes of these gods, that were the ears of these gods, that were the hands and the feet of these gods. Whatever was attributed to the idols of the past was made real in the public space by human faculties. Any of the mysteries surrounding an idol of the past, any power that they may have had over the thoughts and actions of human beings, all of that was invented by other human beings, by ancestors, by wise men. But in the vast majority of cases, all of that was invented by rulers, by kings and princes. And we are well aware of that in our own history. 
that much of what we think is religion today came from the mind of a king or a ruler or from the agents of his institutions and his policies and his departments and his ministries. And so it is with the ideologies of today. All ideologies come from a certain supposition about human nature. But no ideology could be important. No ideology could become a social program, a political priority, a public consciousness, unless it is made real by its human agents. Unless it is moved into your everyday life by human beings who endorse those suppositions. In the Quran, the term that is applied to the human agents of idols is the word Ummah. And Ummah is many hands with one objective, many minds with one purpose. And so for an ideology to become a social program in your world, in your society, it has to have an ummah behind it. For any ideology to command authority over its ummah, it must demand absolute conformity to a set of principles, a set of suppositions, and a set of ideas. Now Allah demands absolute conformity from the Muslims. Only Allah demands conformity to the truth. And when we talk about conformity here, the Quranic word is ibadah. Ibadah is not just a set of rituals that the faithful discharge at particular times and particular places. The ibadah is this absolute conformity to a set of principles, a commitment to a set of ideas, a commitment as far as Islam is concerned to the truth. And in the same way, that Allah demands ibadah, absolute conformity from His Ummah. Allah's rivals who compose ideologies and idols demand the same kind of conformity to their own ideas, their principles and their suppositions. Yes, it is true that human beings demand ibadah from other human beings. The difference is, is that Allah demands ibadah to the truth. And ideologies demand ibadah based on the views of certain human beings. And so if these human beings are racists, then they demand conformity to a set of suppositions that infer the superiority of one race over all others. And if these human beings are nationalists, then they demand conformity or ibadah to the national interest, which generally ends up being exploitative, narrow and unjust. And if these human beings 
are capitalists. Then they, then they demand conformity to a class structure that transfers wealth from the poor to the rich. And if these human beings are communists, then they demand conformity to perpetual and reactionary class warfare in order to deal with the endemic negative consequences of capitalism. And if these human beings are feminists, then they demand conformity to a feminine identity that is considered to be unique and distinct from a masculine identity. And the consummation of this identity is considered to be lesbianism. And if these human beings are Zionists, then they demand conformity to the notion that all inferior races on earth are subjugated to the chosen people, the elite and the elect. And I can go on and on with these various notions in history of human ideology. But in the end, the reason that these ayat are cited, regardless of whether idolatry is primitive or sophisticated, in our world today, in the modern world, idolatry is represented by ideology. And if I was to make it simple, I could just call it ideologies. But in reality, there are two sides of the same coin. They are all human inventions. But it is this very dislocation of authority away from Allah that lies at the very core of shirk. Just as idols were dead ends of the past, the ideologies of today are blind alleys. Their transformative potential is limited to whatever they can achieve by force. Consider the policy of democratization. Now when we talk about democracy, If it was something that agreed with human nature, if it was something that ennobled human nature, why do you have to force it on other peoples across the world? Why does it have to be carried into the third world or into the Muslim world in particular on the payload of a missile? Why do the human agents of democratization have to be terrorists who are euphemistically labeled as rebels or who are labeled as insurgents to give them a veneer of acceptability. Why do false flag attacks have to be conducted all across the world in order to drive militaries into innocent societies with the claim that they are going to be civilized into democracy. If it was a system that makes its own case, if it is self-evidently true, if it, if it is self-evidently acceptable, why not allow the people in the target countries to make their own decision about this system?
In the end here, Allah does not have to overstate the obvious. All of us realize that idols cannot see, they cannot hear, they cannot move. We know this as a matter of fact. And so Allah does not have to tell us. He does not have to ask us something that is self-evident. And so the question is, why does Allah Ta'ala employ this metaphor? What does He want us to understand when He says to us that can't you see that they can't move and that they don't have eyes and ears? Can't you see that if you demand something from an object that it cannot deliver? And so what Allah Ta'ala is alluding to here is that these eyes, these ears, these hands and these feet are the institutions, the ministries, the think tanks, the intelligence apparatus and the militaries of governments. That is what Allah Ta'ala is alluding to. These are the instruments of shirk that transform ideological kufr into the structural zulm that you see on the streets in your societies every day. The zulm that you have to live with the zulm that you have to deal with, the, the zulm that you have to confront, the zulm that you have to reverse, and the zulm that you have to fight with. This zulm, this injustice, this oppression that is in your lives every day, it doesn't just come from nowhere. All of this comes from the mind of man. The mind of men who wants you to do your ibadah to them, who wants to, who wants to rival Allah in your everyday affairs, who wants to give you the laws to follow, who wants to deliver upon you the policies that inure you to your oppression. And so these ayat are not about yesterday, they're about today. They inform us about what's going on in our real world. And so let's fast forward now to our present day. And in our present day, we have the cult of billionaires. The ayat are talking about idols that are taken as gods. And today the captains of capitalism are the billionaires. And it could be said that the billionaires are the gods of the people. Today we are socialized to seek, to seek guidance from billionaires. The most respected people in society are the ones who have accumulated the greatest amount of wealth. And because they have accumulated the greatest amount of wealth, we think that they have something cogent to say about social issues like education, health care, drugs, immigration, the environment. How does somebody who's made billions of dollars how does he qualify to issue views and opinions on things that affect billions and hundreds of millions of people? But nonetheless, that's the world that we happen to live in. If you happen to have made billions on manufacturing educational software, or gadgets that have a parenthetical importance to education, then you are projected as an expert in education. If you happened to have developed the largest online retailer in the world, or perhaps in history, 
then you are considered to be able to voice cogent opinions on a living wage. If you have the largest social media website or web application in the world, then you are considered to be an authority on security and issues of ethics and privacy and issues of ethics and censorship. And if you happen to develop a genetic procedure to modify fruits and vegetables, then you are considered to be an expert in agriculture. And if you happen to be able to manufacture weapons of mass destruction, then you are considered to be an expert in how the cost of war affects societies. Brothers and sisters, what Allah Ta'ala wants you to realize is that people functioning as gods only have the limited view of a human being. And if you have to tackle major social issues like education, like immigration, like war, like foreign policy, like the environment, then these issues are left up to the deliberative, to the deliberative assemblies in society, to congresses and to parliaments. These are not within the purview or the domain of one individual, even if he happens to be a billionaire. Even if he happens to be a genius or the smartest person on earth. These issues cannot be tackled by one person, by the views of one person, or by the achievements of one person. These issues demand the participation of hundreds and perhaps thousands of smart people in society. And they have to put their views on the table. And they have to bring the advocacy of their views to the table. And they have to be able to convince others in a, in a consultative assembly, in a deliberative assembly. They have to be able to convince others without being disagreeable, without using force, or no other force than the intellect. To get them to understand that this is probably the right way of doing things. And in such a forum, it's not one person's view that dominates. What ends up percolating in the very end are pieces of the views of many, many people. And it is the pieces of these views that form a holistic policy that deliver justice to all people in that society. No one person can claim to have a bird's eye view of the problem or its solution. But when a person is designated to be a god, whether it was a ruler of the past or the billionaire of today, then we have the world, the kind of world that we have today. For the better part of half a century, 50 years, we have been conforming to the views and the policies of billionaires. And look at the world that we have inherited as a result. We have an earth that is literally dying. We have a food supply that is literally shrinking in front of our very eyes and ears. And so why do we have to wait until the crisis is upon our heads and shoulders to be cognizant of Allah's ayat? وَإِذَا أَرَدْنَا أَن نُحْلِكَ
And if we, Allah Ta'ala says, if we are determined to destroy a social order, we render its luxury class its rulers. And look at our society today. The administration of the executive branch in this government today, it has the highest number of billionaires of any previous administration. And so we have the luxury class making the decisions. And then Allah Ta'ala goes on and tells us that if you allow this to happen in your society, then they will spread disintegration at all levels of society. And ultimately because of that, society will be consumed in its own destruction. أقول قولي هذا واستغفر الله لي ولكم فاستغفروه يغفر لكم فاسترشدوه يرشدكم Alhamdulillah, wassalatu wassalamu ala rasulillah. We mentioned that the gods in the world today happen to be the wealthiest people on earth. They're the ones who can create think tanks and generate policy. And they can have talking heads that are so well trained in communicating the research of these think tanks that they can be very convincing. And in other parts of the world, the Muslim world in particular, we have billionaires who are illiterate. And yet because they happen to have accumulated all the wealth that they accumulated, they find themselves in positions of rule. And they are held in those positions of rule because of the more literate billionaires in other parts of the world. And in particular, we have a combination of illiteracy and wealth perhaps that has never been seen in the history of, of the world. And now of course I'm referring to the royals in Arabia. It seems that at least some of them are in trouble because this Khashoggi affair is just not going away. With every passing day more and more details come out not only about the murder itself but about all the behind the scenes relationships that culminated in that murder. And one of the things that has emerged about a key relationship between the crown prince or the clown prince of that country and the president of this United States. One of the key things that has just recently emerged in this past week is that $110 billion arms contract with Bani Saud that this arms contract is just a series of letters of intent. That nothing in fact was signed. At the time that the meeting took place last year, it was said 
that the royals are going to spend 110 billion dollars over several years to purchase weapons and weapon systems from the United States but it was never revealed that these were just letters of intent what makes that germane in this particular instance is that these royals are not only considering purchasing weapons and weapon systems from the United States they're looking at similar weapon systems from other providers mainly the Russians and the Chinese and so one of these weapon systems is a missile defense system in the United States is called THAAD T-H-A-A-D it's an acronym that stands for something and the Russians call their similar missile defense system the S-400 the Russian system is cheaper but nonetheless the letter of intent that these royals signed was for 15 billion dollars and so a few weeks before the Khashoggi affair took place in the consulate in the Saudi consulate in Istanbul the Saudis were shopping for the S-400 system from Russia suggesting that they would buy the Russian system instead of the American system and when you have an economy like the one that you have here in the United States that thrives on the occupation and the confiscation of other people's resources then 15 billion dollars is a lot of money and this country already sanctioned the Chinese because they wanted to purchase the Russian S-400 system instead of the American system and so now that the Saudis went shopping to the Russians this is not it's just, it's just another detail in this whole affair and all of a sudden this affair took place in Istanbul and as this affair took place and the American administration is calling for an investigation and that they're going to be and that there's going to be a serious punishment what it's demanding is that you want us you have to spend the money with us you can't spend the money with one of our competitors if there's any money that has to be spent if there's any money that has to be given we want it and that's what this whole affair is about it's about it's about squeezing every red penny out of a society which has already given every red penny more information has come out initially the royals in Arabia they offered five billion to the Turkish president now they've sent the mayor of Mecca, the governor of Mecca, Mecca province they've sent the governor four times his name is uh, his name is Khalid al-Faisal they've sent him four times to meet with the Turkish president and now they've upped the amount call it hush money they've upped the amount to 30 billion dollars and in addition to that to lift the blockade on Qatar and why are they offering so much more money than they initially offered well now information has, has again leaked out that the Turkish authorities their intelligence apparatus has the whole thing on video and audio and they threatened to release it to the public and so now you have the administration here in Washington that's trying to extort every drop of oil and every dollar out of that out of that intrepid monarchy and you have a president in Turkey 
that is trying to extract every political advantage he can out of this situation. And the president of Turkey wants a little bit more. He wants the royals in Arabia to put pressure on the royals here in Washington to do something about the Kurds that are on the border of Turkey. To stop arming the Kurdish people that are on the border with Turkey. And so this whole affair has become a huge political game of geostrategic alliances, negotiations, and whatnot. And this whole this whole affair, this whole hullabaloo about a journalist being killed. Does anybody have the courage to say that the United States routinely kills its own journalists? It routinely kills journalists in other countries? Well, let's forget about the journalists in other countries. They're not U.S. nationals. But there are hundreds and thousands of them that have been killed by U.S. intelligence agencies. But let's just concentrate on the United States. Because people are saying that this uh, uh, Jamal Khashoggi was a resident of the United States. What about Gary Webb? What about Michael Hastings? Now I'm sure you, I'm sure you haven't, if by my mentioning these names, probably for most of you it doesn't mean anything. The name Jamal Khashoggi means a lot because it's been on a 24-7 news cycle for the past month. Well, what does Gary Webb, Michael Hastings, what do these names mean? They were journalists. In fact, they were real journalists. They could write in English. They didn't have to have their work translated from Arabic into English and then finesse during the translation. They could actually write in English. They were actually field reporters, investigative journalists who went out and got a story. Only that story did not conform to the, geostrate to the geostrategic and geopolitical objectives of the executives of this country. Michael Hastings died in a freak car accident. Gary Webb, they say, killed himself. And for those of you who might not have heard, Gary Webb was the person who exposed the CIA trafficking crack cocaine into poor and depressed African-American communities. He's the one who wrote that whole story, who exposed it. And so they say he committed suicide. Well, the reason that you didn't see this story, you probably don't remember it, is because it didn't receive this kind of coverage. It didn't serve the geopolitical purpose that's the, that the exploitation of this affair serves. And so this is why we see information not only leaking out in dribs and drabs for the better part of a month now, we also see how geopolitical objectives are prosecuted in the world that we live in. It's completely unrelated to principle. It's only related to what satisfies somebody's perception of the national interest at the moment. Allahumma arina al-haqqa haqqan warzuqna attiba'ah wa arina al-baatila baatilan warzuqna ajtinaabah Allahumma aghfir lil-mu'minina wal-mu'minat al-ahyai minhum wal-amwat innaka qareebun sami'un majibu da'awat Allahumma rabbana atina fi dunya hasana wa fi akhirati hasana wa qina adab al-nar ربنا لا تزغ قلوبنا بعد إذ هديتنا وهب لنا من لدنك رحمة إنك أنت الوهاب إن الله وملائكته يصلون على النبي يا أيها الذين آمنوا صلوا عليه وسلموا تسليما
اللهم صل على محمد وعلى آل محمد كما صليت على إبراهيم وعلى آل إبراهيم إنك حميد مجيد اللهم بارك على محمد وعلى آل محمد كما باركت على إبراهيم وعلى آل إبراهيم إنك حميد مجيد بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم والعصر إن الإنسان لفي خسر إلا الذين آمنوا وعملوا الصالحات وتواسوا بالحق وتواسوا بالصبر ومن أظلم ممن منع مساجد الله أن يذكر في حسمه وسعى في خرابها أولئك ما كان لهم أن يدخلوها أولئك ما كان لهم أن يدخلوها إلا خائفين لهم في الدنيا خزي ولهم في الآخرة عذاب عظيم عباد الله إن الله يأمر بالعدل والإحسان وإيتاء ذي القربى وينهى عن الفحشاء والمنكر والبغي يعذكم لعلكم تذكرون ولذكر الله أكبر والله يعلم ما تصنعون وأقم الصلاة اللهم بر الله أكبر أشهد أن لا إله إلا الله أشهد أن محمد رسول الله 